this is Chris McCoy, along with Gabby, and we're here for episode number seven of the Encore podcast. How's everybody? I hope you guys are enjoying springtime. It doesn't quite feel like springtime here on the East Coast yet, but Gab, I know we're getting there. I, the flowers are in bloom. The trees are breaking out, which is another problem. My eyes are itchy as crazy. The true sign of spring, itchy eyes. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I've been sneezing like, uh, okay, enough about me. A uh, little later on in this episode, I'll be talking with my former boss, Brian Lopez. Brian was the guy who hired me to come out and work in Sacramento Radio, which I did for over four years. We'll be talking with Brian coming up. But we recorded that interview with Brian Lopez from Sacramento on Saturday. And the very next day, the news came, the horrible news came about that shooting, that mass shooting on downtown Sacramento. J Street is where it happened. And Gabby, I know that area so well uh, because that was J Street is just especially right there uh, is one of the big areas for restaurants and hotels and nightclubs and bars and everything. And it's a fun area. It's a real fun area of downtown Sacramento. And I don't know if it could ever be that way again after the horrible, horrible shooting that happened there with six people at last report died and about a dozen fighting for their lives in area hospitals. Just har- And as we were getting ready to start this, I see that they've made an arrest. A 26-year-old man, there's not a whole lot of detail on that yet. My wife and I have been there so many times for dinner. We stayed overnight in the hotel. We went to events in the Golden One Center, which is right there. It, it just, it was like a, a punch in the gut getting that, getting that news. Absolutely. It's terrible to read about mass shootings. I was saying before the podcast started that I believe Columbine happened the year that I was born. Unfortunately, this is something that's been going on for all of my life. And I hate reading about new ones. And I can't imagine having a connection to one. I have been lucky enough in my life that there's been no mass shooting in an area that I had spent a lot of time in or was currently in when it happened. So my heart really goes out to all of the families that are suffering loss and all 11 or 12 people fighting for their lives right now. I hope the outcome is only good. And it's just a terrible, terrible thing to read. Amen to that. I hate it when I hear politicians say our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of the victims. I don't want to hear that. You know, I I do something. Don't just, you know, send thoughts and prayers. That's meaningless. It means absolutely nothing. Anyway, having said that, boy, I'm thinking about all the people out there in uh, the Sacramento area that I came to, to, to know and like, and in some cases love and how it must be affecting them because it happened in their, where they live, where they work and where they play. And I'm, I'm thinking about those people today. Look, uh, we're going to come back in a little bit here. I'm going to collect my thoughts, and I guess you will too. And we'll talk about some pet peeves on (laughs) the Encore podcast. (laughs) Okay, so here on the Encore podcast, Gabby, what do you say we let it all hang out and talk about Pet peeves, you know, things that really bug us, gotta get under your skin, 
you know, you can't keep these things in. You got to let it out every now and then. And I don't think a day goes by where we as people don't come across a pet peeve, right? I agree. I think this is going to be a good topic. Just to give you an example, Roberta's going to hate me for this, but Roberta's big on asking questions while we're watching a movie or yes. Or, you know, like, uh, who is that? What, what's her relationship to him? I missed that. And I'm thinking, well, okay, what we need to do is stop it, (laughs) pause it, go back (laughs) and play the last, I don't know, five minutes again. (laughs) So you'll get it. And pay attention next time. And, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that too, honestly, I, but not as much as she. She doesn't Maybe. listen to this, right? She won't hear this. <laughs> she won't. Yeah, she'll hear it. Maybe we'll just edit that part out. I don't know. <laughs> Let's talk about our pet peeves. You want to go first? Sure. One of my top pet peeves, I would say, are slow walkers. Living in a city, you got to walk with a purpose. You don't need to walk super fast but you can't just mosey around when there are so many people around you who are trying to get places in a appropriate amount of time. Yeah. You're talking about, you're a New Yorker. Yeah. You, you live in the city. It's particularly bad when you come across that where you are. Listen, you don't have to break out into like a, a quick jog, but you do need to be aware of where you are. Walk with a purpose. Running in this city is sometimes so tough because there are pathways for us to do it but then people want to take walks there. And that's absolutely okay. What's not okay is walking in a line of five straight across while moseying along. At that point, you need to move. You need to (laughs) consolidate your group and you need to walk forward with a purpose. And that's all I'm asking for. You know what you need to do? Get one of those bike horns, you know, uh, and just carry it with you. And as you approach them, you know, squeeze your bike horn a little bit. Or maybe something louder. I don't know. Like, you know, uh, one of those things where, you know, they're under pressure and they come in the can. You hear them at ball games all the time. Are you used to? Oh, like an air horn? Yeah, like an air horn. Yes. Get an air horn. (laughs) (laughs) You know, along those lines, Gab, how about people who wait to the very last minute in traffic to change lanes to cut you off because they have to exit? And, you know, their exit is right there. And there's no, this happens to me almost weekly where someone will do that more times than not. I'll look behind me and there is no one behind me. But this guy on the left just had to speed up enough to shoehorn his car between me and the guy in front of me so he could make that exit. There's another thing about, you know, planning ahead and just not being a jerk. Yeah, the roadways are a little lawless nowadays, I would say. But the last thing I would do is do something that I used to do when I was younger. And that is, well, I got to teach this guy a lesson. I'm sorry. I got (laughs) no way. I'm not doing that anymore. Take your life in your hands on the road from in more ways than one. So, but that really does bug me. Another one that I notice a lot on social media is the misuse of your belonging to you and you are doing something or there, there, and there. And I'm sure this is more my pet peeve because I was an English major and I think it's pretty easy to just use the correct word that you're looking for, but it's really just so interesting to me to see someone online calling someone else stupid and then using the wrong word. Like you're stupid. Y-O-U-R. Exactly. (laughs) And a fun, fun bonus that I would like to add for the misspelling and misuse of words that I see online that is a pet peeve is 
I'm really happy for you that you got in good physical shape, but you are losing weight. You're not losing weight. <laughs> Although I guess your pants are getting a little bit looser. That's true, but that's not how they meant it. That's so not the right verb. Yeah. All right. Now here's a question I have for you with this pet peeve in particular. Do you take the time to correct their grammar when you see that? Sometimes you just have to recognize something as an L for somebody else and move on. <laughs> I totally agree. That's on them. We all had the same four years of high school. So like, you know, at this point, that's on you to learn the correct word. <laughs> my one of my big pet peeves is people who are habitually late, especially if you're counting on them. Let's say that you do a job where, you know, you're counting on that person to relieve you so that you can stop doing your job and go live your life elsewhere, whatever, maybe go home from work. People who do that, they obviously have a time with clock management, I guess. They just don't know how to get to be where they are on time. This is not one of mine in particular, but it is a, a common one that I know of. Morning people. I recognize that you have a skill set that I don't have, which is waking up and being ready to go with your personality in the morning. And I hope to achieve that someday. But I know a lot of people who are just trying to wake up and start their day in a little bit of silence and morning people will come in and be like, Hey, how's it going? How are your dreams last night? How was your weekend? What's going on? What's new with you? And like I said, it's, this is not a pet peeve of mine, but I know it is a popular one. I think it's not a pet peeve of mine because I have the wherewithal to say, I will chat with you in about 10 minutes, but until then we must be quiet. Yeah. I, you know, even though I was professionally a morning person for a lot of years, I still need a cup of coffee or two before I can really, you know, put a couple sentences together. So I totally get that 100%. Um, and, you know, are these people from a different planet? Where, where do they come from where you wake up and you're like in full blown, you know, noon o'clock mode already? That's just crazy. I know. Like I said, it's a skill set I wish that I had. I almost admire them when I look at them because I'm like, how do you achieve this? Was it just something that came naturally to you? Or was it a 10,000 hours of work situation? I guess it's just nature more than nurture. Yeah. Um, the one, one of my pet peeves is a recent one and it's baseball. And I love baseball, always have. But baseball is probably the sport with the most amount of statistics involved with it. They keep statistics on everything in baseball, as I'm sure you know, if you're a fan. Uh, but the one that I've been seeing pop up lately that I never noticed before is the exit speed of the ball off the bat. Like when the ball is hit, how fast did it leave the bat? The team that I root for, the Philadelphia Phillies, and I know you root for them too, even though you're a New Yorker. The Phillies have this great hitting lineup this year. We're all looking forward to seeing it. And they've been obsessed in Philadelphia in the, in the papers about how fast the ball leaves the bat when one of these guys hits it. And I'm thinking, why does that matter? You know, especially if the ball's leaving the ballpark, who cares how quickly it gets out? As long as it gets out, right? I can see if, you know, you're talking about hitting a ball 120 miles an hour past a third baseman. That's different. Doesn't give him time perhaps to make the play, but they just are obsessed with this exit speed on the baseball. And it's just like one of a long line of statistics for me that makes no sense whatsoever. Agreed. Lastly, styrofoam. Styrofoam is a huge nemesis of mine. Hmm. Uh, you know, we just uh, bought 
bought a house back here again on the East Coast, and we've been buying a lot of things online for the house to decorate, whatever. And they come out to your front door in boxes, and some of the things are, you know, fragile and they get packed, some of them in styrofoam. And to me, styrofoam should be outlawed because there are other ways of packing things that are fragile and keeping them from breaking. But styrofoam, first of all, do you know that sound it makes when you oh. roll a piece? Oh. <laughs> After you unpack everything and you've got the yards of styrofoam, I have to break it up to get it into the trash or the recycle. And this is the other thing. I don't even know, and I should, is styrofoam recyclable or do I put it in the regular trash? Because it seems to be in that gray area for me. So you, I break it up. And when you break up styrofoam, it like migrates into a million little pieces that all, you know, fly all over your clothes and they go all over everywhere and then you can't get them off because they have static electricity and it's just i don't like styrofoam please stop using styrofoam thank you all right gab let's take a break <laughs> don't you feel better though i always feel better after complaining <laughs> let's take a break and we'll come back and uh i want to talk to a, a guy i just absolutely love uh, he hired me out there in Sacramento for a, a radio job just about a little more than four years ago. Brian Lopez coming up on the Encore podcast next. I keep in touch from time to time with a few former program directors that I've worked with uh, down through the years, but none that I really consider close friends. Now, the exception to that would be this gentleman who brought me out to Sacramento, California, almost five years ago to be part of his wildly successful classic rock station, KSEG, better known as 96.9 The Eagle in Sacramento. Brian Lopez is with me this week. Hey, Brian. Well, good day, Chris. And you know, you should know better than to make me emotional right out of the gate. <laughs> but I echo your sentiments. <laughs> you and I have that thing. We tear up very easily. And uh, well... Yes. The emotions are right here on our sleeves. <laughs> well, I meant every word of it. And uh, Brian, you were obviously one of the one of the highlights of the four years that I spent in California. And if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have spent four years in California. Leads me to this. <laughs> you know, I sent the package out to you in response to your ad in one of the trade magazines. You were looking for somebody, an AR person. So I sent it out and I, I mentioned to a couple of friends here in the business, in the Philly area, that I was doing that. And they, they said, you know, what do they do out there? I said, well, it's a classic rock station. And they all said, you will never be hired <laughs> to play classic rock because you spent your whole life as an, an adult contemporary jock. You know, the guy next door and all of that, you just don't have the chops to play classic rock. And as true as that statement has been, <laughs> I mean, after all, I spent 40 years playing adult contemporary, you know, Celine Dion, Barry Manilow, you know, you name it, all the stuff. Why did you take a chance on me? You know, Michael Jordan moved from the NBA to baseball and he would have made the majors if they gave him enough time. So I disagree with the statement that you didn't have the chops. I was thinking about that when you invited me is to answer that question on your audio that you sent me. You started it with, and I'm going to paraphrase because I haven't heard it in five years, but it was something like my butt hurts so bad. And then there was this long pause, and it was the way you set up this story that could have gone a million different ways, especially on a rock radio station. That could have gotten pretty raunchy. 
And after the room laughed at your setup, you said that you went on a bike ride and away it went. <laughs> the way you set it up had every bit of rock sensibilities and entertainment sensibilities. And that was the key to it is how do you tell a story? And then the second bit was when we started talking about music, did you have the ability to relate to the music that we played and, the, and obviously the audience that loves that music? And you were right in the pocket. So that was an easy answer. Just because your resume said something else, you, you just hadn't chosen to come our way in. That's all. Funny because aside from classic rock, that whole genre, Genre being something I grew up with and actually was, you know, what I preferred to listen to as a young person. For me, it was like, what do you mean I can't play classic rock on the radio? Of course I can. <laughs> I know it pretty well. I really have always enjoyed it. But there is people, the industry tend do tend to get pigeonholed at times by certain mm -hmm. people who are the people who hire. Um, right. And see, you know, I've come across that in my home market where I spent you know, over 35 years, I've been pigeonholed there. There are several reasons why I sent my package out to you was because I really couldn't get arrested in Philadelphia radio anymore. After, being, after being really so darn successful for a long time on two major radio stations, I don't know what it was, but there were no takers out here. The other thing was, and I'll mention this because it, it just worked out so well. And Brian, you are so instrumental in this. My daughter married an Air Force pilot who was stationed in New Jersey. He found out maybe four and a half years ago that he was going to be transferred out not far from Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And he was going to take Lauren, of course, with him because they had just gotten married and she was pregnant with our first grandchild. There they go. They're going out to California. Roberta and I are back in the Philly area thinking, oh no, we're going to miss out on so much. Of course, we'll go and visit every now and then, but it's just not the same thing. Right. And to be perfectly honest, Roberta was the one who saw your ad and sent the material out to you. I had no idea at first that she did that. Wow. I had no idea. I didn't tell you this before. No, I don't remember this. Okay, this is true. Roberta would tell you. <laughs> She's the one that saw the ad. She's the one that sent it out to you. And when I found out about it, that's when I started talking to my friends in the business here who were telling me, yeah, you'll, you know, it's not going to work. Sorry, it's not going to happen. But it did. And they got out there about a month before you called me or texted me. I remember we were all sitting around the table one night after dinner, and I get a text from you, Brian, got your stuff or some paraphrasing, got your, got your package. Can we talk? And I looked up from the text that I said to Roberta, this is amazing. I actually got a nibble from this guy out in California, <laughs> <laughs> which I wasn't expecting to happen at all. Not even a nibble. I thought, you know, it's just going to be shoved off to the side, maybe into the waste can. No. But and I remember that night myself because I was working late and trying to hire as a process when you're sifting through hundreds of applicants and reading through the packages. And I remember reading through yours and you had a line of humility that really caught my eye. And I don't remember exactly what it said, but in essence, it said, don't let the um, preconceived thoughts that you have about maybe me or what I might want from this. Let's talk if you have any interest in what you hear. And so I emailed you like 8.30, 9 o'clock on the West Coast and knowing that you're on the East Coast and you immediately responded. And I, I thought that, well, he must be a, a, you know, a night owl or a party animal. This could be fun. Used to be a party animal. These days, I'm not even a night owl anymore. <laughs> Those days are gone. But yeah, I mean, I, you and I had, I don't know, maybe three or four conversations on the phone 
over yes. the next over the next maybe week and a half or so. And I remember because, you know, my house at the time was pretty active. So I would go up into the upstairs, up into our bedroom and into our walk-in closet. And I would close the door because it was the quietest place in the house at the time. And I was sitting on the floor talking to you <laughs> about the possibility of coming out to California, to Sacramento to work for you. The whole thing was just for me, very surreal. What I can say from my part was, is in talking to you, I was ready to hire you. And I was hoping that you would be seriously considering hiring me. Absolutely. And I, I know that we've shared the memory of it, but when we were talking in one of those initial conversations, my wife, Christina, and I were watching Cheers at the time. <laughs> and we were talking about our love of music. And I shared with you that I could go on and on and on about Tom Petty as if I was Cliff Clavin giving fun facts. If you were Cliff Clavin, who would you go on and on about? And instead of going on and on about an artist, you went into a Cliff Clavin impersonation that was fantastic and without any warning and I, I just, I really admired that, that you went for it. Like there, you were having fun with it. We immediately connected and it just showed your, your immense talent. Well, thank you. I, you know, I give you credit for that as well. You know, if it, there are so many people in the business that I've talked to in being sort of maybe initial interviews where I never would have felt comfortable doing that because that question probably wouldn't have even been put out or that thought wouldn't have been put out like it was. So I thought, wow, this guy and I are kind of kindred spirits that way. So I felt, well, this is either going to get me the job or he's going to say, well, look, Chris, uh, up until now, I had been very interested, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep looking <laughs> because, because in, in, in reality, I'm a Norm fan, not a Cliff. Norm fan. <laughs> I was a Norm guy too, but still, it doesn't mean you can't appreciate what you, what you get back with Cliff. Brian, you were, if you don't mind my saying, you're a, a bit of a rarity in the industry in a way, especially in recent times as a programmer who didn't really come up through the system as a jock, as a radio personality. How did you come to program the number one station in the Sacramento mark for all of those years? Well, to start, there was an interview with Leslie Nielsen on our old morning show, Mark and Brian. And they asked him, how come you didn't want to be a serious actor? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I would say that I was a, a host at the beginning. That's what my goal was, but it was short-lived for obvious reasons. <laughs> Thankfully, Larry Sharp gave me a break in my early days to be on the air and I got to do it. And I realized that the art of what that is is completely different than my personality and my desires. So I think I did an adequate job, but it wasn't all that much fun. It was a, it was a lot of tedious work in my brain. So while I could do it and I, I probably should have, and I'm, you know, for career longevity, maybe, um, but I just had such great mentors that showed me each little piece of the business in a different way. And, you know, those people are friends and they just invested in me. I'm just so grateful in that. I came up in a different way as a producer, as an imaging guy, learning the ropes as an assistant program director under Curtis Johnson, who was a great mentor as well. And then you have ops managers that teach you things like Jim Fox and, you know, you just learn from all of these people in addition to these heritage hosts that really knew what they were doing. And they took the care to teach me about their crafts, which in the end helped me help them when, you know, you get to be the steward of a brand, you've got to, you know, create in essence, the boundaries of, of their creative landscape and just remind them where they are. And it, 
away they go. You just get out of the way. I think you were someone who would sit in an office all day and you worked long hours. I mean, you were in early in the morning and you didn't leave until 7, 7.30 on a, a lot of nights, but you would sit in there and you were like this creative genius though, in terms of how you put things together, how you handled the air staff for me was something I had never experienced a program director before. You were very encouraging. You would put out an idea and then let it sit with the person that you were putting the idea out to and let them come up with ways to, I don't want to say implement that, but ways to think about that. And I appreciated that so much. It was just something for me that I hadn't experienced before, the kind of encouragement that you gave to all of the air staff, really. And by the way, I got to say, the, the air staff at the Eagle, some of the, some of the best people I've ever worked with. And I've worked, no question. With, I've worked with some really fine people, but to a person, they were just, they were so helpful for me. I mean, I had just come across country. I was starting something brand new. I was a little unsure of myself because of all of the, the talk I was getting in the back of my mind about, you really can't do this. And they're going to find that out real quick. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should have bought a round trip ticket, you know? Uh, no, but- and, and to your credit, what I would say is, you know, here you've got these heritage, just it, really in the market legends that have been at, at it and at that brand for a long, long time. And on day one, you fit right in and they welcomed you. And that's telling about you and them that one, they can recognize when a, a brother's coming and how to encourage you but also how you fit in and look for your your role within the team. It's remarkable on both sides. Absolutely. I think so too. And uh, I miss all of you guys, and the men and the women that I worked with out there and, and the, uh, the, the people behind the scenes, the off-air staff were just as dedicated and as hardworking and as creative. I had never, you know, come across a staff like that before. I've, you know, I've been on staffs where there are one or two people that I would put in that category, but not everybody. It's just amazing. And it brings me to talking about the way you handle an air staff. People in this business can be highly insecure for good reason, really. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people don't like to go on vacation when they work in radio because you never know whether you're going to have a job when you come back. Right. Um, but, you know, there's also you have to have some something of an ego in order to be in this business, too in order for it to work. What was your philosophy on handling an air staff? Well, I totally agree with you that you've got to, not that you're bulletproof, but people, the listeners are great supporters unless you do something that really upsets them. And and really our, our job with the radio station is to make you feel things, which can be positive and negative. If you feel engaged enough to call after you just did a 90 second rap about a topic that was dear to you, but now you've upset someone, you put your heart out there and the response was negative. Yes, if you don't have some sort of ego and you know something that's driving you beyond because you might get hundreds of calls or emails or now social networking posts and whatnot that would put you down for something that you just spent hours crafting just such a short thought and it engulfed the audience and inflamed the audience. (laughs) So you have to be able to bounce back from that because the next time that you open the microphone, you might be telling a joke and you can't be in the dump, you know, you've Mm -hmm. got to just move on. And without that resilience, um, you just wouldn't survive and obviously wouldn't entertain, which is the key to your career. So I think it's part of what fuels most hosts is that fear of failing to entertain so they really craft and hone that 
concept and it's just a fleeting moment but it's in a given music show you might have 20 moments of that each day you know you're putting yourself out there every time and even more so if you're a talk show host but to me the way you handle that is you have to be encouraging and and remember not to overreact to one of those moments so again reminding the hosts of where the boundaries might lie if if there's a, a leap outside of the boundary but there's no i i don't think that there's much room for jumping in right after they've had one of those moments where things might have not gone the way they planned or maybe didn't go the way I heard that it could have gone because I I can have a conversation in two hours after that not in two minutes and have a better impact and so again I was just taught that boy forgive me I am not comparing myself to John Wooden I read about how he his coaching philosophy was about preparing before the game and once the game comes you kind of sit back and let the game happen if you've prepared enough the game will go well or at least reasonably close. And I do believe in that. Prepare, let everyone else prepare their own way and then let them do it. It's not uh, Pinocchio here and (laughs) pulling strings. One of the things that I still think about from time to time is I was there for about a month, no, two months, when Tom Petty passed away. Of course, Tom Petty, major, major artist on the Eagle for obvious reasons. You are a huge fan, huge Petty fan. He's We're, we're, we're talking on Zoom right now, and uh, he just showed me the mug, the Petty Speaking mug. for my Tom Petty mug, yes. <laughs> the day that we first heard in the morning that at first it came out that he had passed away. Yeah. And then they came back and said, well, no, he's still alive, but it doesn't look good. And this lasted all day. And it I remember really you, you called the staff in, you know, you had us do what should have been done is that is, you know, talk about our thoughts and memories and appreciation for Tom Petty and the heartbreakers and all of that. And we did that, played his music. And I was working during the night at that time. I came on at six o'clock. I remember that you told me that if anything happens, I would like you to stay there and be sort of that person that commiserates with, I don't know if commiserate is the right word. Yeah. (laughs) With the audience. Yeah. The passing of Tom. And it did, as it turned out, it did happen that way. Tom Nakashima and I went out to dinner that night. And while we were out to dinner after my shift, I on my phone, I got this indication that Tom Petty had passed away. It was official. I went back to the radio station and I was in touch with you. You were in touch with me and you were putting together the music on the fly as we were doing it live on the air. But I, I think the reason I bring this up is, is that you had an entire staff of people that were Sacramento radio icons, and you didn't bring any of them in. You kind of let me do it. And at the time I was thinking, gosh, I wish Brian would bring in one of the Sacramento radio icons to do this uh, because (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I'm worthy. First of all, these people don't know me talking about the listeners. They don't know me. They know these other folks, but you kind of let me do it. It was out of my comfort zone, to be honest. I don't know if I've ever had this conversation with you. It was kind of out of my comfort zone because I felt, as I said, you know, I'm the new guy, the new kid in town, and maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But I did, and I was very glad I did, and I was very glad in retrospect that you let me do that. Maybe Mm. no one else would would answer the phone. Maybe that was the (laughs) deal. No, and I I have to admit, it didn't even cross my mind that maybe... Uh, this was too much for you. It was just a, you know, again, you're part of this team. You've proven yourself, even though it only been a couple of months, you were every bit, 
you know, ready in my mind. It wasn't like um, there was any doubt in hearing you talk about it. Now I realize, boy, a bit of a mistake on my part because of the pressure that you might have felt. And to fill in the audience a bit on that, if anyone has ever spent more than three minutes with me, they understand that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are the absolute number one greatest gift to music that in my mind that we had in our generation. I'm grateful that I know that, but you also knew that, that I felt that way. And now hearing you talk about that, I could imagine that there might've been some pressure <laughs> that you felt that here you are representing what is allegedly the number one thing that we do. But what I'll say about it is it, to me, it cemented with the audience and with the staff and certainly with me personally, your character, the way you handled it and the way, and you use the word commiserate, it was a very sad day, especially because it drug on. There was some hope that he might survive, then there's not. And the audience was obviously emotional about it, just as we were. And you were emotional on the air. And that's the way it should be. You need to be real. And I think, you know, being uncomfortable is part of it, because that is something that most people are uncomfortable with, is death, especially when it's somebody that is revered. The way you handle that with so much grace and respect and knowledge, and then the sharing, there was fun times sharing memories, and there were sad times realizing what just happened. I think that it was the perfect call. The other members of the team did participate just in the earlier portion of the day, and so everybody had a little involvement, and it showed the true character and class of the team members that got to represent the fandom of Tom Petty in Sacramento. By the way, for the rest of the staff who are wondering, you know, who does this guy think he is? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Now, the, the thing was, is that even though that would have been my expectation at the time, any one of them would have done a stellar job. I mean, a stellar, stellar job with that evening, even though it went well past midnight and a lot of yes. them had to get up early the next day. It's just one of those things where you put, you kind of put me in a position where I had to come out of my comfort zone and stretch a little bit. How do I handle this being the new guy in town and being very aware of, again, hearing that thing about you're not a rock guy, you know, mm. and now here I am, not a rock guy, talking about a rock god who unfortunately passed away just a short time ago that evening. And it was just, it was one of those things that, in retrospect, I was so glad, and I felt good, actually, while I was doing it. When I get to a certain point, and I heard the listeners on the phone who were just calling up to talk about Tom and their memories of their concerts that they went to with him and how how they sang along and, and you know, all of that. I thought, well, they don't care that I'm the new guy in town. They just care that they've lost somebody that they love. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that you had the presence of mind to realize it's not about us, you yeah. know, well, while it, it might've been difficult and not, not in your comfort zone to recognize that you're there for the audience and there for the, the fans and the, and those who just wanted to celebrate that music or, or that artist in that moment. Well, in spite of the fact that I hold you in the highest esteem as, as a, first of all, a human being and someone that I worked for and with, and as a programmer in radio, you're no longer doing that. Correct. Yeah. And, and thank you for that. Very well deserved. Anyone listening who knows you will 100% agree with that statement. I know why you're not in it anymore, but I think it's a major loss for radio that you are no longer doing what you used to do. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it, it's not a, an uncomfortable thing at all. The Eagle was a very special place for me. Um, I grew up, not grew up, but the, the first few years of the station's life, I was a, a huge fan of it. And that's what led me to an internship, which just led me into a career. And I was following the concept of learning about the music and the art and then the art of entertainment, the marketing, like all of the pieces that make up a radio station in the 90s and 2000s. And I would say that, you know, as timing would have it with COVID and whatnot, that there was some changes at the station that included me. It, if you could pick the ideal exit, it was almost that because it was understandable and it wasn't personal. And I'm very grateful for the way it was handled, you know, the company and the team treated me with nothing but respect and care and compassion. What I wanted to do in radio, I got to do. And a lot of what I love to do in radio isn't available anymore. It isn't that I'm against it or I think it's gotten worse or it's a terrible, like, no, it's a different product now. Radio is a different environment and the entertainment that is considered successful right now is different than my sensibilities. And so instead of chasing after something that may or may not still exist in a different market, radio was only special to me for a few reasons. And there are jobs that would still entice me. But as an overall industry, mostly it's one of those things where if, if you're not on board with the direction the train is going, you probably should get off at the next stop. So that I'm wait I'm here on on you know the loading dock instead of on the train so it still holds a, a dear spot in my heart and you know um, there's some really talented people in the industry. I know what you're doing now. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of creativity that at least the same kind of creativity that used to go into what you used to do. Yes. Do you have an outlet for that now? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's it's really industry uh, interesting to me that I, I learned it through the, the career change is redefining what we think is the purpose or what we love about the job. And, and it's really just changing that terminology. And anyone that is in transition now or thinking about it, going from one industry to another or a job to a different job, I would just really recommend that thought of if we took what we what I got to do in radio as creative problem solving, because whether it be trying to engage an audience in a different way, or to, to make up new marketing plans for a client, or to come up with some sort of promotion that, to give away Disneyland tickets, like that's creative problem solving. And I do that now with the company I work for, FPI Management, and they they give me this, this freedom to solve problems on the tech support team, on a software support team in my own way. And I do get to use creativity. I'm just not writing documents or, or narratives around Tom Petty. It's just... <laughs> It's a different environment, but I'm still helping people. I still work with really nice and professional people who have been at their craft for a long time. Like you can draw parallels, even though it's a different industry. You know, the lesson learned, it's more about the people and your own purpose or, or the, the value you derive from what you do. To me, a conversation like this is a great reminder. It's all about the people. And while I'm not in the industry anymore, those friends are no less friends than they were when I worked there. They're certainly still in my life. The creative juices are still there. They're just different. It's like apple and orange juice. They're both good, uh, but they're a little different from each other. I think I think I got that. Correct. And, and my family is subjected to the entertainment things that I would have shared with you. And now I try, <laughs> try out on them and I get the groans, you know? <laughs> 
I know all about that. I know all about when, when um, Roberta and I are driving in the car and a song comes up and I talk up the intro, you know, I get the eye roll and I get the groans and, you know, <laughs> but I'm expecting it. So, you know, and if I didn't get it, I would think what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a noteworthy story that my family uh, kind of ribs me about uh, about a year and a half ago, we were, listening to music and on came uh, Tom Petty's live version of Learning to Fly, where the there's an interaction with the audience where they're singing part of the, the chorus and Tom veers off and is singing a new part that he's probably Im improvising. And I pause it and I give a, a talk <laughs> that has now become known here in the house as a sermon <laughs> of how Tom Petty's music is so spiritual and moving. So yes, that happens here too. Oh my, let me ask you this question. Uh, now that you're out of radio, I mean, even though I've, I did it for 45 plus years, I never lived my life as if I could be, as if I could lose my job the next day, which was always the reality. But I always kind of put that, uh, move that aside. Mm -hmm. there, there was really not a whole lot of security along the way. There was probably, there obviously was more security for me than I ever thought there was, but I never took it for granted. How do you feel now? I mean, I don't know whether you felt that way as you were working in the industry. This job could dry up and, you know, go away tomorrow, which Indeed. was always the thought in the back of my head. Yes. Now that, and now that you seem to be in a more secure position, does that apply to you? Well, it, I would say that, you know, going in, I, I started in 1993 as an intern. And from that uh, initial period, Everyone on staff said, get out, kid. They're just going to, they're going to ruin you. Or, you know, this, this place chews you up and spits you out or whatnot. And I just like, oh, come on. But it did kind of set me up for that expectation that this isn't going to last. At the time I was 17 and I thought, yeah, you know, if I make it into my 20s as uh, whatever, while I'm going to college, great. And then it became full time and it became, okay, well, maybe I'll make it to 30. Well, I made it into my 40s, so a, a pretty good run. And yes, there were moments of like, I would almost say severe trepidation where it just felt like, oh my gosh, it, this is going to happen, isn't it? But it, those periods didn't last that long. And I, I think that the lessons that come from that is make sure that you're doing something you're proud of. And if it still comes, you've done something that you're proud of. Sure, there are things that you could have done differently or some adjust, adjustments you could have made, but it isn't like this life of regret now. So again, one of the lessons I get to take with me is that. So I, I'm not here worried about what might the future bring or, or a career change or whatnot. It doesn't feel like that's coming, but we'll, you know, there's a way to figure that out. It's, it's like a faith in hope that the, the future has something in store and we'll just figure that out when it comes. Okay. Can, can I keep going back to the Tom Petty? Well, uh, there, he has that lyric of uh, most things I worry about never happen anyway. And for those of you who want to look that up, it's called Crawling to You off the Wildflowers album. The man was a genius. Bob Dylan. Okay. Tom Petty, way up there. In, in my mind, at least, anyway. <laughs> well, hey, we could go off for another, you know, 10, 11 days on music talk. I'm so with you that there's a lot of that generation's musicians who those legends that introduced ideas were then perfected by the person who took that idea and improved it. And I would use Jimi Hendrix to Stevie Ray Vaughan. You can go the birds to Tom Petty. 
you could go Bob Dylan to Tom Petty, but where you see some parallels with artists and how they improve it, that's one of the things with Tom Petty that I most admired is his humility to say it, that I wouldn't be here without the 12-string Rickenbacker that Roger McGuinn played and inspired him, or Elvis. And anyways, I know I'm getting off on a music tangent, and this is what the kids would call the sermon, so I'll stop. <laughs> I just, one of the things I remember, since we're on the topic of uh, Tom Petty, I remember him saying at some point that, you know, he grew up admiring Elvis, the Beatles, of course, but he said that, what was the thing he said about Elvis is that he always kind of wanted to be Elvis, but he didn't think he was as good looking as Elvis. So he would <laughs> never, never make it yeah, as a rock artist because, well, you know, Elvis set the standard, so to speak, in his mind at the time. How ridiculous is that? But that's the things you think about, you know? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. The baggage of something from way back when. Correct. Yes. Brian, you know, I could talk to you all night, all day. I'm just so happy that you uh, agreed to do this. It's been a, a great discussion and I love you. I really do. I, I, love, I love you, you man. I you love are you. a fantastic human being. <laughs> you're a family man. I love that about you too. And you, you're a good father. Your kids are just great. Your wife puts up with you. Christina puts up with you, but it's a good thing that she does. <laughs> Amen. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I feel so much the same way about you. And, and Roberta, you, you both have special places in our hearts and everyone that uh, I've seen come into contact with you and sharing one small story about it was like not a going away but one of the final dinners we had before you moved back east was you came out for dinner and drinks and it was like five o'clock and you said well just come by for a glass of wine here at the house before you head out and that was like at 7 30 and then roberta is demanding that we all call it quits at like 2 30 in the morning <laughs> and that is a just another reminder of your gift of making everyone in the room feel like they're the funniest, the kindest, and maybe it's the chemistry that we collectively have, but it's a gift that you have that inspires it. I, I'm grateful that our paths cross. I'm glad you that Roberta sent me that email so long ago. <laughs> and I'm glad that it, the story doesn't end. In summary, I would just say I'm grateful to have the chance to talk with you on, on your show. Yeah, I think it's a fun listen. Again, uh, leaning into your storytelling abilities, and uh, I'm honored that you invited me. Well, thank you, sir. I would never do this <clears throat> without having you be part of it, so I appreciate that so much. I just learned of something yesterday that applies to what you've taught me, maybe, but I wanted to ask you about it on today's show. There's a product called Steak Um. Is that a viable cheesesteak option? Because it's kind well, it's sort of intro to cheesesteak. I remember as a as a teenager, uh, there was always a big box of steakums in the freezer in my house. And I would uh, come home from working at, at the supermarket as a, as a cashier, and I would cook myself up what I thought was an excellent cheesesteak there, right there on the stove in my house. And <laughs> steakums, if, there, if you cannot find a good cheesesteak wherever you are, steakums will do in a pinch. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. So it's sanctioned. It's, it's allowed. Unlike the peppers. Right. Please. No peppers on a cheesesteak. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Ryan, thanks again for doing this. I so appreciate it. Be well. Be safe. Have a happy Easter. Thank you. I appreciate it. You do the same. Well, Gab, I really enjoyed that. 
it made me realize how much I miss Brian and all those people that I worked with out there. They're such great people. And I have such a special place in my heart uh, for Brian Lopez for all of the reasons that I mentioned over the last hour or so, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He was such a great interview. It, it was a lot of fun to listen to it. And if we ever do a Tom Petty episode, we're going to have to have him come back and co-host a <laughs> resident expert. He could do a podcast on Petty alone. He probably uh, could. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again, Brian Lopez. I appreciate it so much. And uh, well, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week and we'll figure out something interesting to do in the meantime. Right, Gab? Right. We'll see you on the Encore podcast.